Hello guys and girls and welcome back to another episode of Seb Talk Sports, sponsored by Hoopin and Luton, the place to go to for your favourite new and vintage jerseys and apparel from all things basketball. That intro music and podcast theme was created by all pro New York Giants running back, now music creator and friend of the show, David Wilson. Go and check him out on all of his social media platforms at Forza Running on Twitter and Instagram and his music under David E. Wilson across all good music streaming services. He's free for business so drop him a message if you want some beats for your podcast, adverts, commercial, absolutely anything you need. Before I get into this episode I just want to say that if you're not already following Seb Talk Sports across all platforms then please do. You can find me on Facebook Facebook, Seb Talks Sports, YouTube, Seb Talks Sports, Twitter, at Seb Talks Sports, and Instagram, where I'm primarily active. Again, it's at Seb Talks Sports. Today, I've got an incredible guest on my show, one of the greatest linebackers of all time who racked up 1,086 career tackles across an 11-year career for the Seattle Seahawks, Philadelphia Eagles, and primarily the Pittsburgh Steelers, where he became a franchise legend, earning consecutive team MVP awards, two-time All-Pro and Pro Bowl honors, as well as receiving an inclusion in the NFL 1990s All-Decade team. It's the monster in the middle himself, number 99, the brilliant LaVon Kirkland. Enjoy! My guest today is one of the greatest linebackers of all time, a two-time All-Pro, two-time Pro Bowler, 1919 NFL All-Decade Team member, and Pittsburgh Steelers franchise legend. It's an absolute honour to welcome LaVon Kirkland to Seb Talk Sports. LaVon, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing today, sir? I'm very, very good. Thank you very much for asking. I'm looking forward to getting into it. Okay, let's do it. Wonderful stuff. Okay, I'd love to go right back to the beginning, the early days of LeVon Kirkland. So what are your earliest memories of football and sport in general? Since I know your uncle Lamont was also a professional boxer too. And when was it you yeah. truly fell in love with the game of football? God, you know, I, I don't, I always love the game. I don't mm-hmm. remember not loving the game. I, I just know when, like, even when I was real young, I had a ball in my hand always. But I think when I was probably 11 years old, when I, I used to be in the backyard just tossing the ball around, playing both sides of the ball, playing in the championship game by myself. I just remembered saying that I was going to play pro ball. Mm. And I, I think that's when I truly fell in love with pro ball, when I watched it a great bunch on TV. Even when I went to my high school games, usually kids my age would be playing around and just running around. But I would be really into the game. I would always watch the game no matter what. So I would say probably 11 when I realized that football was my avenue. That's what I wanted to do. Mm. Were there any sort of memories of your uncle boxing? Did you ever go and watch your uncle box professionally or anything like that? No, I, I never did. You know, my parents were kind of strict with stuff like that. So I never did that. But yeah, um, but you know what? I love. It's kind of funny because I, when I work out, I like to do a lot of boxing. Mm. So it's kind of in the blood. So I, I enjoy boxing. I really enjoy watching on TV. And the reason why I like it so much is because it's such a, it, it's a brutal sport, but it's a thinking man sport. And it takes a lot of skill. Yeah. It takes a lot of endurance. It takes a lot of energy. It, it takes everything. And I enjoy boxing. And when I really became a very good player, I, I would do boxing on the off season mm. to work out. So that was one of my secrets. <laughs> I think that's why I played as well as I played. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And of course, before your time in the NFL, your college career at Clemson was a fantastic one, to say the least, because before entering the NFL, you had two ACC championships. You were a Buckus Award finalist in 1990, an All-American in 91, and you finished your Tigers career with 273 tackles, 40 tackles for loss, and 19 sacks in an effort that would later see you inducted into both the Clemson Athletic Hall of Fame in 2001 and the team's Ring of Honor in 2019. How much did you enjoy your time at Clemson, both on and off the field? How did it specifically prepare you to take that step up to the NFL level? Well, you know, playing playing football for the Clemson program was tremendous because I grew up in South Carolina. I grew up watching the University of South Carolina and Clemson. They were both big-time programs. Clemson was probably the better program, I would have to say. And But the most important thing was when I got recruited by those guys, Coach Miles Aldridge, I'll never forget, He just we just created a relationship. And I trust him with my future. Ganey Ford was the head coach, and they were the first ones to offer me a scholarship. I went down there, and I think a lot of times when you're choosing a college or you're choosing a car, <laughs> it's got to feel right for you. It's got to yeah. happen. It, it, you gotta, it's more of a spiritual choosing than anything else. And I just felt like Clemson was the right place for me. And it really was. I really blossomed there. And it's, it's not on just my own efforts, but my teammates, the coaching staff, support staff that was there. I, I just felt at home at Clemson. And Clemson's not for everybody, but for me it was. And then on the football field, just really flourished. Just really kept improving. And it was a great experience for me. It really was. And to be honored in the ring of honor this uh, past year was just amazing for me because I never thought that was going to ever happen. You just, <laughs> you just never thought it was going to happen. And when it happened, you're just blown away because you know, other people who are deserving of it too. So for you to be chosen means that they thought a lot of you and it's the highest honor you can get as a student athlete. So yeah, man, I was thrilled that I had an opportunity to, be at Clemson University and play for those guys. It was an amazing feeling and, you know, a place that I really cherish to this day. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, another very special moment from your college career that led to the NFL was, of course, your draft moment. So I'd love to go right back to April 1992. It's the NFL draft and the Steelers are about to draft their very own all-time great in yourself as Jimmy Smith and Darren Woodson were both going to the Cowboys with the picks before. Tom Donahue picked up the phone and gave you a call asking you to be the latest addition to a star-studded linebacking core featuring Greg Lloyd and Hardy Nickerson, which would later become even better with Chad Brown, Jason Gilden and Kevin Green over the next two years, right, of course. Yeah one of the most formidable linebacking calls in NFL history. How did it feel to receive that call and join one of the most successful franchises in the league's history? What did it mean to you and your family? Uh, well, for me, it's kind of, it's a funny story. I was a big Dallas Cowboy fan growing up. Mm. But after I finished my senior year, I had a lot of conversations with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Mm. I went to visit those guys, just like, you know, and Dallas was another team that I visited too. So I was talking to Coach Coward, and I just wanted to play for him. I, I knew it was going to be a draft. You never know where you're going to end up. But I wanted to play for Bill Coward so, and the Pittsburgh Steelers. So when the draft day happened, and it's about 15 minutes before Pittsburgh's going to pick, the 38th pick, I go into the bathroom, 
and I look in the mirror and I'm like, they're gonna pick me, they're gonna pick me, they're gonna pick me. I felt so strongly about it that I sat at the table and I just waited for the phone call. Wow. I was like, they're gonna pick me. I was gonna, I was going to intercede in some kind of way. I was gonna manifest that before there was such thing as manifest. I sat by the table. I said, but I went to the table and the phone rang and Tom Donahue was like, Hey, LeVon, we're really considering picking you this next pick. I was like, wow, considering. Okay. And then another guy, Charles Bailey picked up the phone and he was one of the scouts there. Mm. And he was like, his voice, he was like, do y'all have cable TV in Lamar, (laughs) South Carolina? I'm like, yeah. He's like, (laughs) Do y'all have ESPN? I was like, yeah, man, what, what are you trying to say? He was like, congratulations, man. Welcome to the Black and Gold. Oh. And I was just like, oh, my gosh. Because it was such a long time. I mean, from being 11 years old to now you're 20-something, almost like 11 years or so, to wait for that moment, mm-hmm. to wait for them to say your name. I mean, that's a lot of trial and error as you go through there. And when they said that, man, I was just so thrilled. I really was. And you're right. I went to a place where, you know, linebacker play is important. And to be able to hook up with guys like Greg Lloyd, uh, the late, great Kevin Green, Chad Brown, Jason Gildon, it it was fantastic. Earl Holmes, I played with some really good guys. And, you know, defense was such a big thing in in Pittsburgh. You know, more so than offense, really, for the fans, they like defense a lot better. Mm. So it was cool to be a part of that lineage, and, and I just had a great time in Pittsburgh. It really fit me very well. Mm. Very nice. Very nice answer. Okay, so fast forward a few years in your time on the Steelers. And after three straight playoff appearances and two AFC Central titles, the 99-5 season for both yourself and the Steelers was a particularly special one, of course, because you went 11-5 in the regular season, followed by a 40-21 blowout against the Bills in the divisional round, 20-16 win over Indy in the AFC Championship game, which of course meant you made an appearance in Super Bowl 30 against the Dallas Cowboys. And we've just been talking about them. A game in which you started and played a notable role, racking up 10 tackles and having a key sack on Hall of Fame quarterback Troy Aikman of course and while the Steelers unfortunately fell short of getting their hands on their fifth Lombardi trophy I'd love to know how did it feel to walk out onto the turf at Sun Devil Stadium in Arizona and battle it out alongside your teammates for the opportunity to become world champions I tell you what it's something that you imagine when you're a kid Um, (laughs) I had this big imagination and like every time I would have to do any kind of chore where I had to go outside or something I will always pretend I'm in the Super in some kind of way, even when I got to be, you know, a high schooler, you know, playing high school football. So you always play that game in your mind like a thousand times. So to be able to actually be on that stage was amazing. It really was. I just remember warming up before the game, the pregame, the spectacle of it all being one of the captains. So that was the first year I was a captain on the team. Mm. And it was like, wow. Because everybody is watching. Everybody around the world is watching the Super Bowl. Whether you are a big football fan or not, everybody pays attention to the Super Bowl. So to be the only game in town was quite the thrill. 
It really was. And I was nervous because my knees were knocking. <laughs> and <laughs> it was funny because my knees haven't knocked since the first NFL game I played. So to have that feeling again meant it was a big deal. And as the game flow along, man, I, I really started playing well. I, that game, I really started believing and trusting in my in my eyes, having confidence in what I'm seeing and doing. And although we lost the game, it was really a pivotal, a I mean, just a great transition for my game going a little higher. I, I think that I really gained a lot of confidence playing that game. But man, I wish we would have won that rank. Because you never know when you get a chance to go back. Yeah. And I was a young guy, and you you always assume that you're going to go back. But that's not always the case. You may not go back. So you have to really take advantage of the opportunity. And I, I, I played well, but I still wish we could have won that, won that thing. It would have been nice. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, so while you rounded out your playing career in Seattle and Philadelphia, which I'll get to, of course, you spent the vast majority of your time in the NFL in Pittsburgh, racking up 898 tackles, including six 100-plus tackle seasons, 20 and a half sacks, 15 picks, two all-pro team inclusions, two pro ball appearances, an inclusion in the 1990s all-decade team, an NFL alumni linebacker of the year award in 97, and two consecutive team MVP awards. So accolades that could go on forever. With regards to your teammates, coaches, and all of the fans in Pittsburgh, what do the Steelers organization mean to you? Uh, it's a great deal. It means everything. You know, sometimes you have to be blessed or fortunate enough to land into a spot like that. And I was. I was really fortunate enough to be a part of the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers, be a part of the history, uh, affiliate myself with the Rooney family. So it was huge for me. Uh, Pittsburgh... I would always root for Pittsburgh. It's a team that gave me opportunity after opportunity. So they have a special place in my heart, no doubt about it. And it's just well, well run, run and it's really well respected. And I had so much fun playing. It, it was really a thrill to be at Three River Stadium, which is now High Stadium. But man, those Pittsburgh Steelers fans, the energy that they provided, the teammates that I was lucky to have, it, it's, it's always going to remind, it's going to always remain a special place in my heart. Uh, I'm always going to be black and gold. So, yeah, I, I was fortunate to be a part of it. And I still cheer those guys on today. I always want them to win. But for me personally, I couldn't ask to go to a better organization. It really taught you how to be a professional, really taught you how to win. And I think a lot of times, man, that's important, that you have leadership from the top to the very bottom. And that's what it was with Pittsburgh Steelers. And I think anybody who ever gone, gone there would agree that Pittsburgh is one of the better places to play in the NFL. Mm, very nicely put. Okay, so after your time in Pittsburgh, of course, you signed short-term deals on the Seahawks and the Eagles, having another 100-tackle season in Seattle in 2001 before making it back to the doorstep of another Super Bowl, Super Bowl 37, in 2002 on a 12-4 and Philly team that were hunting for their very first Lombardi trophy. So how much did you enjoy your time playing elsewhere in the NFL? And though you were an established veteran at the time with nearly a decade of experience in the pros, how quickly were you able to adapt in two unfamiliar environments outside of Pittsburgh? Well, it's kind of funny because I jumped from being in one type of defense, a 3-4 for nine years, then going to a 4-3 for my last two years. 
So it was some adjustment there. But luckily enough, I've had enough age on me and I can, you know, certain terminology that Pittsburgh used, it could carry over when I was with Seattle and Philly. And so it was just a really a good chance for me to really challenge myself. And at Seattle, I think I did that. I provided them with leadership. But going to Philly was a little bit scarier for me because, you know, I I went to them a little later when training camp was happening. But I caught on quickly. You know, you're a football player, you're a football player. Hmm. And although you may not know all the terminology, everything within the scheme, you, you get it after a while. You, you, you understand it. And I enjoy playing for Philly because it was a team that was a contender, a very serious contender, and we almost did it. And it was a lot of fun because I was playing with a lot of younger guys, some veterans on the team, but I was probably one of the older veterans on that team. And it was a lot of fun. Really had a good time. I liked playing for those guys. And we almost did. And I thought, man, I would have a second chance to go to the Super Bowl, but it just wasn't meant to be. But I enjoyed that year I had in Philly. And I got to be under guys like Andy Reid, who was, mm. I thought, a terrific coach, still a terrific coach to this day. But I was glad that you picked me. And you feel a sense of purpose when a team as good as Philly that can plug in anybody, but they just figure like, hey, let's get Levon. And I was able to become a starter on that team. And it meant a lot that they thought of me that way. And, you know, thought of that I could be a key to help them get to the next level. So it was a lot of fun. And I really, I really enjoyed it. Hmm. Nice to hear. Okay, so you've had a number of fantastic coaches throughout your career that have been pivotal to your success. You just mentioned Andrew there and, of course, Bill Cower a bit earlier on. Terry Styers, Gene Chiswick, Miles Aldridge, Tommy West, Bill DeAndrea, Danny Ford, Ken Hatfield, and then in the NFL, of course, Dom Capers, Dick LeBeau, Jim Haslett, Marvin Lewis, Mike Archer, Mike Holmgren, Jim Johnson, Andy Reid, Ron Rivera, and, of course, your longest-serving coach, the great Bill Cower. So how important were those guys to impacting and improving your game from your time in high school right back then all the way through to your final season in the NFL? in 2002? Well, I have to start with Coach Terry Thiers in high school. But also we had guys like Don Poole, uh, Coach Bell. We had some other guys that really helped. Coach Bethea that really helped mold me. Coach Thiers was the one that really talked to me about going to the next level. He saw it, you know, before a lot of other people saw it. When I saw it, you know, I knew it for myself, but to hear Coach Thiers tell me, I really think you can play on the next level, meant so much to me. But he also told me during that time, you have to really commit to this game. It clicked. When he told me that, I was like, wow, okay. You know, and I was able to get to that next level, especially being, you have to understand the time too. Back then, there was not the internet that we have now. There is not the recruiting uh, circle that we have now. So when you're from a small town, even universities at your in your state may not know who you are. Mm. So for me to get a chance to play on that next level, I had to play for a really good high school. And I was fortunate enough to play for a very good high school, although it was a small high school that was able to get to the playoffs and that's really how I got discovered. Then you go to the next level. Dan, Danny Ford was an icon 
in South Carolina, especially at Clemson. Everybody knew Danny Ford. He won their first national championship. The program was on the rise. I mean, it was big time. And to have guys like Miles Aldridge that recruited me, Tommy West, who was my position coach, uh, it was tremendous because they, they, they took it to another level as far as playing linebackers concerned. And I have to give Gene Chisholm a lot of credit because Gene behind the scene was really the one who helped me to understand the, the system, the scheme. And I learned a lot from Gene and it wasn't really anything that was organized. We would just get together because I told him that I wanted to be a great player. So we did that. Then I, when I go to the pros, my goodness, Bill Coward, Don Capers, Dick LeBeau, Marvin Lewis, John Mitchell, Tim Lewis. I had some great coaches on that defensive side of the ball. And they just took it to another level. I felt like I was learning from professors more so than coaches. Mm. Guys who were really scholars of the game. And then when I get to Seattle, Mike Hogan, who was who won the Super Bowl and his coaching staff. And then you go to Philly and you get to go with the great Jim Johnson, who was a f- fantastic coordinator at his time. Jim Haslick, that we still have a great relationship to this day. So yeah, I was blessed to have some very good coaches. And I think a lot of times I keep saying blessed, I keep saying fortunate, you have to be. You know, you can be very talented, but if you get hurt, you know, that may cut your career short. Or you can be very talented and you go to the wrong organization, you go to the wrong college, and it can really stunt your growth. It can knock you off the track. So if it wasn't for God's blessing in my life, it it wouldn't have happened for me. So I feel that that was a part of it. And I think that's the reason why I did as well as I did. Very nice. Okay, so as well as coaches, of course, you've played alongside some incredible players, just numerous Hall of Famers that I'm not going to list because I'd be here all day, but I'd love to focus on one specifically, which is, of course, the great Kevin Green. Alongside Kevin, yourself, Greg Lloyd and Chad Brown formed one of the most formidable linebacking cores in NFL history in the mid-90s. Kevin, of course, one of the greatest linebackers of all time, Hall of Fame class of 16, 160 career sacks, numerous All-Pros and Pro Bowls, including many more accolades, and he very sadly passed away a couple of months ago on the 21st of December. So I'd love to know what was your relationship with Kevin? like both on and off the field and what legacy does he have not only in Pittsburgh but across the sport as a whole well I mean Kevin was a godsend for me he came in my second year which was my first year starting and we got him from the Rams and his reputation was already pretty big pretty huge and he embraced me right away he was the first guy as a player to tell me Kirk, I think he, he was, he used to call me LK and he was like, LK, man, you got everything. He's like, you got everything to be a great linebacker in this league. And to hear from a player that I've watched on TV that I've seen on videos, wild and crazy making plays for him to embrace me the way he did was tremendous. And I really love Kevin as a man. I love that he was a great husband. He was a great father. He was very disciplined. He was kind of military in a lot of ways. Hmm. I I know the long blonde hair kind of throws you off and it seems like he's this wild guy. But in contrast to that, he was a very disciplined guy. And he was one of the first guys to really 
get me into the film room and to watch film a little bit more than your normal watching film because you watch film with coaches and stuff like that. And some players, after they finish that, they're gone home. They're not watching any more extra film. He was the one that got me to watch more film than was required. And I got it from him to watch a little bit more, to study with your peers. And then the rest of the linebackers, we would just watch film on our own, just us as a group. And we'll go over, okay, this is what I'm thinking on this play. Hey, if you do this, I'm going to do that. So that was one of the reasons why we were so so good. Not only because we were physically talented and we brought something to the table, but we also collaborated as far as understanding who we were, understanding a lot of times how we could fit into the scheme. And then a lot of times having each other's back, you know, allowing each other to like, hey, go ahead and do this. I'll cover for you. Or um, if you do this, then I'm just going to do that. So don't worry about it. Do whatever you decide to do. I can play off it. Hmm. So Kevin was special to me in that way. It's because he really embraced me. And, you know, in our country, you know, unfortunately, a lot of times it's black and white, you know, and there's a lot of separation. there. But for me and him, man, we were, we were tight. And after our careers were over with, we kept in touch. And he will always tell me that he loved me, you know, after our conversation, after our text message. So when he passed away, it really, it really, I really felt it. I really felt it. When they say a brother in arms is a brother indeed, it's like that. We're not military or anything like that. But football is a brotherhood. And if you're with certain guys for a long time, you're connected. And you feel that. And when something happens, you feel, you feel for that person because you know, you're in the trenches. You're not military, of course, and I don't want to put it in that category, but it's something like that. It really is. And and that's what I felt for Kevin. And it was so amazing that when I went to his memorial and I saw his wife and kids, they relayed to me that Kevin really loved him. It's like, he loved you. Then his daughter said, oh my God, he loved you. And then his son came up to me and said, Man, all my dad can talk about is you and him coaching together, how much he loved you. That, that is an effect that you won't find that in all teammates. Hmm. So I, I love the guy. I mean, I absolutely love the guy. I love this white man that had all this long, flowing, blonde hair that was crazy on the field. I, I loved him. I really did. And, um, he will always be in my heart, always. Yeah, it's a huge, huge loss. Rest in peace, Kevin. Okay, so from playing under and learning from those coaches I mentioned earlier to becoming a coach yourself. In 2013 and 2014, you served as Florida A&M's defensive coordinator and D-line coach. And in 2015, you became the first ever recipient of the Bill Bidwell Coaching Fellowship under the great Bruce Arians on the Cardinals staff, all of which happened immediately after your wife very sadly passed away due to lung cancer, which I was very sad to learn about. So my condolences. I would love to know what was it that made you want to get back into football and start giving back the knowledge and discipline you'd gained throughout your playing career to the younger generation? You know, when I first got out of football and I went back to college to graduate from Clemson University, 
I didn't really want to coach or really be, I wanted to see what else I could do. So I did a missions for Clemson University. Everybody always thought I was affiliated with the sports program on the football because I know for them it made a lot of sense. But I wanted to do something different. So I did a missions for a while. And it really taught me a whole lot. Then I did, I'm going to tell you what happened to me. I went, this guy asked me to do a football camp. And I was like, okay. So I did the football camp. And guess what? I fell in love with coaching the game. And so I was talking to my wife at the time. And she's like, why don't you just coach like high school? You know, you can just do it part-time, coach high school. You still can work at Clemson and work out. So I started doing that. And then that's when I really caught the bug as far as coaching is concerned. And it took me to the college level. It took me to the NFL level. And you learn so much along the way. I was really fortunate to be at FAMU and then to be with the Arizona Cardinals. It taught me a whole lot. And it was a way for me to give back. And I think when you can't do it anymore as an athlete, coaching usually is a good way to give it back. But there are other ways to give it back also. You know, I am... I am doing my master's in psychology right now. And I feel like that's going to be a great way for me to give back, not only to athletes, but maybe to mankind in some type of way. So it's a big endeavor for me. So, but I believe that we all need coaches in our lives, whether you call them coaches or mentors, we need someone to help us get to the next level. And The only reason why I got to as high as I got to and had a really good career is because I had coaches along the way to coach me. But I look at coaching not only as on the field, but I think sometimes you need someone who's just on your side, you know, that you can come to and maybe you can release all that to someone else. So I have important work that I need to do. So that's the reason why I love coaching and I'm going to continue to coach. You know, I still would probably do football camps. I don't know if I'm going to be really coaching a team per se, but I feel like I will always be coaching in some type of capacity. Football will always be there in my life, whether I like it or not. (laughs) Very nice. Nice answer. Levon, I'd love to end with some quick fire questions. Are you ready? Sure. Let's do it. Okay. Favorite takeout food. Favorite takeout food would probably be pizza. Nice choice. Okay, dogs or cats? Ooh, that's a tough one because I actually like both. I would have to say, mm, if I was going to have a pet, it would be a cat. Nice, nice. Okay, favorite music artist? Favorite music artist of all time? Yeah. Oh my gosh, dude, that is a tough one. <laughs> that really is a tough one. But I like, I like Sade. Mm. Yes. Yeah, she speaks to me in a certain way. (laughs) Very nice answer. Okay, favorite sports movie? Ooh, God, there's a lot of good sports movies out there. There really is. But I really like Moneyball. Mm, Yeah. I like Moneyball because they were just, they they found a way to survive in the land of uh, giants. They were basically... You talk about Goliath versus David. They were basically the team that say, you know what? We can't play the way that the other giants play. We have to play differently. 
And I think that's really a good message for not only teams, but businesses, small business. Sometimes you can't play up to Nike or Coke. You can't play the game like them because you don't have the resources. But you can be guerrilla style and you can you can dictate the game to other people. So I, I think that's why I like money ball so much. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great, great answer. Okay, so I would be surprised if you ever had one because you were a 280-pound linebacker that ran a sub-540 yard dash. But did you ever have a welcome to the NFL moment? And if so, who gave it to you? Oh, yeah. I had one when uh, my second year versus Rand. What's his name? Oh, my gosh. He's, he's, uh, he's a Hall of Famer. And he played for the Minnesota Vikings. His last name is, uh, I want to say... Random, no, not Randall McDaniel. But oh my God, I can't believe I'm forgetting his name because we actually became pretty cool friends. But he was he was pulling out for a screen pass. It was preseason, right? <laughs> so I kind of go out there and not giving it a really a hundred percent, just kind of loggy gagging around. He hit me so hard that I flew back like a uh, superhero. <laughs> And I landed on my butt. And I was like, but he woke me up. You mm. know, he gave me that welcome to the NFL. If you're going to be a starter, welcome to the uh, NFL. He hit me so hard. <laughs> I woke up. I was like, okay, that's how you play. And so after that, my whole mentality was, I'm going to hit you before you hit me. Mm. Even with offensive linemen. I was like, I'm going to take it to you before you ever take it to me because in that car wreck where we had, I lost. <laughs> I lost. I did. And it wasn't like my first year, I played more special teams. So it wasn't a welcome to the NFL moment then. But my second year, when I became a starter, mm. and they threw that little screen pass, and he came out there, and I kind of like, mm, and he just, wow. <laughs> he woke me up, though, so I have to thank him all the time for doing that, yeah. Great story there. Okay, funniest teammate you've ever had? Ooh, probably Freddie McAfee. Mm. Freddie McAfee was a running back. He was like maybe second, he was like third straight running back, but he was a great special teams player. He played like, I tell you, I think he played like 15 years just doing special teams stuff. But you're talking about the funniest guy <laughs> on the team. He was one of those guys that, although he didn't play a lot, you liked him because he just made everything just great on the team. He really loosened the team up. So every day he would come in there as loud as he could possibly be, but he would just crack you up. I mean, it was just so funny with Freddie McAfee. So, yeah, he was – the and there was a lot of funny guys, and there's a lot of funny things that are said. But I would say hands down, Freddie McAfee was the funniest guy on – on our team and the funniest teammate that I ever had. Nice, nice. I'll tell you a close second though. The mm -hmm. close second is Briston Buckner. Because mm. Briston Buckner could talk trash with anybody. <laughs> it, it was, he went to the same, he went to Clemson University and he got drafted with Pittsburgh. And people asked me like, what, what's with this Briston guy? I was like, just don't get in a verbal argument with him. <laughs> He's gonna win. And they're like, uh, whatever. But it came true. Like anytime anybody got into a trash talking match with Briston Buckner, he always won. So he was a funny guy. 
There we go. Okay, best locker room prank you ever saw? Lo- I don't know if it's locker room prank, but <laughs> uh, let's see. There was so many. There was like a bunch. I just can't really name them all. But one of the pranks that I thought was kind of funny was back then, you know, people didn't get messages on their phones. Mm. They would, you know, if there was something from the office, they'd give you a pink slip. And it would say, like, who the message was from, and they'd write, like, down notes. So I would, if we were going against a certain opponent, I would pretend that I was that opponent, <laughs> and I would write them a note and leave it on their, and leave it <laughs> in their locker. So there's a guy named Ray Lewis, which you know Ray Lewis. Yeah. And we had a, we had a center that was an all-time center, Hall of Famer, Damani Dawson. Mm-hmm. So every time we would go against, like, Ray Lewis or whatever, I would write a note and say something like, I am going to own you this weekend. I'm going to make you one of my highlight features. So we would say stuff like that. And then we had a we had a lineman named Leon Searcy. Leon was a really yep. good player. But he was going against he was going against Reggie White. And so everybody was like, ooh. So I wrote him a little pink slip. Said I am gonna make you my woman after this game, and <laughs> I just thought that was kind of a funny prank. It's kind of corny, but it was kind of funny as well. So I know you wore other numbers throughout your career. Obviously, forty-four at Clemson and ninety-three in Philly. But why was it number ninety-nine on the Steelers? Was there a reason behind selecting ninety-nine? Yeah, it was. Uh, this is another story. When I got to Pittsburgh, they gave me number 45. And I absolutely hated that number. But the good news was, after the preseason was over with, they told me I had to change my number. And at that time, you could only wear numbers between 50 and 59, 90 and 99. Yeah. So I go back there to the equipment guy, and Tony, the equipment manager, has the four jerseys laying out. Hey, rookie, you need to pick one of those uh, jerseys. So the first number was 58. No way in the world I'm wearing that. That's Jack Lambert's number. Mm-hmm. Hall of Fame, all time, one of the best linebackers ever played. So no way. Then the next number was 59. Well, that's Jack Ham's number, <laughs> Hall of Famer. It is no way that I'm going to try to represent 58 and 59. So the next two numbers, 56, 99. So I looked at 56 first. It was tempting because a lot of good linebackers wore it, but the best to wear it was Lawrence Taylor, 56. Yep, of course. And I thought about him like, you know, uh, it doesn't quite feel right. So then there's number 99. I wore number 44 in college. And I thought like, you know what? There's not a lot of guys who wear number 99. It's close to 100. It's a very different number, especially during that time. It was a very different number. And me being an inside linebacker, I just thought it was kind of, I thought it was kind of badass. Mm. And it just like, yeah, I'm going to get number 99. Because I just thought that I can do something with that number. That number's unique. You know, it was it, it just kind of called out to me. It's like when you go to the library sometimes or you go to the bookstore and 
do you not really know what subject matter you want to read, but you don't really know what book sometimes. You can just kind of go in there. And sometimes I really believe that the book chooses you more so than you choose the book. So I think number 99 chose me more so than I chose it. Mm-hmm. And I looked at it and I remember going out to practice the very first day with 99. And guys just looked at me like, 99? And I just remember saying, don't worry, it's going to grow on you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it did. It just worked for me. Yeah. 99 just really worked for me. Yeah. I don't know if I will be as successful. <laughs> and this is kind of crazy, but it was the number that people just really recognized. And then because I was such a, I was a big guy, people was like big 99. Mm. So it just, it just kind of all fit. Very nice. Yeah. Okay, so at the two Pro Bowls you appeared in in 96 and 97, I'd love to know which player was the most impressive in person compared to what you'd seen only on tape before. Who stood out the most for you? Wow. I'm going to tell you one guy who's impressive was Barry Sanders. Yeah. Yeah, he was a lot quicker and faster than you thought. Like, you could watch. That's one thing, watching somebody on film, and you think, you know, the coaches, the coaches – put the game plan together and everything is really theory. You know, in theory, we think these plays will work. But when you get out there with a, a great player like Barry Sanders, all those theories just go out the window. You, he's that amazing that he can make he can make a two-yard loss into an 85-yard touchdown. Yeah. And a lot of players cannot do that. He's stronger and bigger and a lot of times people confuse small as little. Yeah. Or talk, you know, short as little. And it's not really that way. You could be a short guy, but a big, strong guy. Yeah. And that's what he was. So I always thought that people say, well, he's a little guy. I'm like, no, not really. He's just a short guy. Yeah. But he's not little at all. He's a he's a big strong guy. He's a lot, he's a lot to handle. Yeah. So I always kind of chuckle when people refer to guys that are short as small mm. because yeah. that's not always the case. And then I would have to go back when I went to college and I played Deion Sanders. We had a punt. We kicked the punt off to him, but before the punt was kicked off, he looked at our sideline and just put up six. Now he's going to take it back to the house, right? <laughs> yeah. And I swear their band got up and was getting ready to play the fight song before he even ran it back. <laughs> we, were, we were foolish enough to kick to him. He caught it, and he just kind of weaved through our, through our punt team like it was nothing. And it was I was like, that might be the quickest guy I've ever faced in my life. Mm. So it's, I have to say uh, Barry Sanders and Deion, Deion Sanders. It, mm. It's funny, it's the Sanders guys. You know? Yeah. The they were guy. the ones that was, it must be something about that name, but <laughs> they were the ones that were very impressive. Okay, what three things should the current Steelers organization prioritize to change to become Super Bowl champions next February? Ooh, I think that they would have to address running the ball. Mm. I, I think that they got a great receiving core. I, I love Connors and I love Snell, but those guys are number two guys. Yeah. So I would think also, besides getting the getting the offensive line, getting the running game correct, I think they need to address getting a, a big time running back. 
in the draft. Mm-hmm. And I know that the running back position has devalued some, but there's a few guys in the draft that I think are worthy to take. And these are kind of guys that can make a difference in the running game. Thirdly, I think at some point in time, you got to address the Ben Roethlisberger situation. Yeah. I, I think Ben is probably on his last leg. I, you know what? Honestly, he's on his last leg. He probably played one more year. I don't know if he has many after that. And I think a lot of times in the NFL, you tend to hold on to your star quarterback a lot longer than you really should. And I think you have to address it at some point. Who is going to be that guy when we let Ben go? So I think those are three things. Offensive line in the running game, running back, and how do you address the Ben Roethlisberger um, dilemma that they have? Yeah, nice answer. Okay, as a kid, which NFL player was your favorite to watch growing up? Drew Pearson. Mm-hmm, yeah. The receiver out of Dallas who just recently got into the Hall of Fame. Indeed. I love, I, I, I wanted to be a wide receiver growing up. I, I never really wanted to be a linebacker. It just kind of happened. But I grew up loving Drew Pearson. Him and Roger Staubach, man, that was just, that was just it. Just, yeah. I mean, just beautiful to watch. And then he kind of had that little afro. I mean, it was kind of cool, man. I mean, um, I had a, I had a fan crush on Drew Pearson. I would have probably, I don't know what I'd done if I had met him when I was a kid. So <laughs> Drew Pearson was definitely a guy that I looked up to and really thought a lot about as a football player. Very cool. Okay, and finally, the Steelers' regular season record for the 2021 NFL season will be? Ooh, I'm thinking it's going to be a winning season because they, they tend to win a lot. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be more so like, I, I give them 11-5 again, but it won't be a collapse at the end like they had this year when they started 11-0 and then they end up being, God, they, I think maybe 1-4 or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, so I see them win. They could win 11 games. You just never know when you talk about the NFL, injuries, things like that can happen. And I, apparently COVID can happen too. So, yeah, I see them as 11-5 again, but it won't be the collapse that they had last year. Yep, I think that's a very, very good pick. Levon, thank you so much for your time today. Where can people find you on social media and check out anything else you're currently involved in? Well, um, I'm with the South Carolina Football Hall of Fame. So if you want to check us out there, it's www.scfootballspelledouthof.org. So that's one place to find us. We do a terrific podcast called Inside Blitz with Levon Kirkland, uh, amply named. And then, you know, on Twitter, uh, sometimes I get this wrong. I think it's 44 Levon underscore Kirkland, mm-hmm. something like that. But you can also find me on Facebook and Instagram. I'm I'm LeVon Kirkland, so it's really no secret there. But yeah, that's the way you can find me. Fantastic. I'll make sure to leave all of those links down below so people can find you very easily. And once again, thank you very much for joining me. Have a wonderful day. Oh, man. Thank you so much, Sebastian. I really appreciate it. And there he goes, the brilliant LeVon 
Kirkland, an outstanding player and an even greater guy with some brilliant stories from his time both on and off the field as an elite level NFL player. From his incredible performance in Super Bowl 30, racking up 10 tackles and having a key sack on Hall of Fame quarterback Troy Aikman, to the amazing pranks he played on his Steelers teammates, I thoroughly enjoyed my interview with Levon and it was an absolute pleasure sharing it with you all. Please make sure to go and check out Levon on all of his social media accounts as well as his work with the South Carolina Football Hall of Fame. All the links you need are in the description of this episode. I've got many more great guests coming very soon, so stay tuned right here on Seb Talk Sports. And to take us out as usual, here's another brilliant track by All Pro New York Giants running back, turned music creator and friend of the show, David Wilson. Catch you soon, guys. Yeah.